Welcome back to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast. Today we have an episode with Golf Club Atlas founder Rand Morissette. But first, I'm very excited to announce that today's episode is powered by TD Ameritrade. Every stroke counts on the scorecard and every penny counts in the market. That's why TD Ameritrade is committed to straightforward pricing with no surprises. So you're free to swing with confidence. Visit tdameritrade.com backslash fried egg, member SPIC. Now, without further ado, here's Rand Morissette. I miss a green, for example. I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. You're a big proponent of dogs on a golf course. Why Why is America lost its way and not allowed dogs, for the most part, on golf courses? Well, Americans are good at always coming up with excuses, and they'll talk about the litigious nature of society, and if somebody's dog went over and barked and bit somebody, that the club would be liable, and da-da-da-da-da. But, you know, they've done it in the U.K. for a hundred and... 50 years is just part of the game It's part of the evolution of the game and somehow they are able to figure out how to do it and we're not so i'm not going to come up with excuses for why it wouldn't work here i just know that it works over there yeah it, it seems like it would give it would make the game way more approachable also i think about it my wife isn't a big golfer but she loves our dog and if i go out and walk with the dog she's exponentially more likely to come walk with me exactly i mean you read the article i wrote in golf week i mean it just literally my fondest memories are the the five morissettes and our dog sandy going to the golf course that trumps playing cypress point or pine valley or whatever um and and i I feel like the next, I'm 55, that the generations behind me are getting cheated of something, at least in this country. They're not in the UK, but they are here. And, you know, I lament that fact. Besides dogs, what are kind of the, say, virtues of UK golf versus American golf you'd most like to see come come to America? Well... You know, in, in the UK, golf is a integral but relatively small part of your life. You should be able to go play 18 holes, have a match with your friend, maybe Stableford, in three hours or less. You have a pain at the end of the round, and you're back home all within four hours. In America, it's gonna you, you might be looking at a six, seven, eight-hour proposition and it's just so much, you know, it's just infinitely more time-consuming. And therefore, to a certain degree, it's, it's just that much more selfish. I mean, it's a selfish pursuit. You're doing something that makes you happy. You're leaving your kids and your wife and your dogs at home. And so, you know, I just, I like the way that the um, 
Brits do it, you, you know, if it takes several hours and you scoot right back home, you know, it's in proportion to its worth in your life. And you can get on and do all kinds of, of other things. Um, so, you know, one of the, and the, you know, you can't walk a 7,000 yard course in two hours, 45, like you can Swinley Forest. Um, you know, I can play two rounds at Swinley Forest in the time that it takes to walk a quote unquote championship course in the United States. Um, and so, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just a huge fan of 6,000, 6,100, 6,200 yard courses. Par does not need to be reach certainly 72. It can be 68, 67. Um, you get your exercise in, you know, in a timely manner. And I think that that's, you know, that the Brits approach it, um, like that. I've never seen a Brit stand off to the side of a green and write his score down right after holing out. Um, and, you know, through Golf Club Atlas, I've had a lot of guests here. And when I take them to Southern Pines Country Club, if somebody asks me after the first hole, what'd you get? I know that I've made a misjudgment <laughs> in, in inviting that guy. And of course, I'll always um, uh, have some kind of witty uh, retort for that. But, um, you know, the card and pencil mentality that McKenzie uh, hated is alive and well here, but I don't see it in the UK. It's the thing that drives me the most nuts is if I'm in the group behind a group that's in carts and, you know, they walk off the green and they, they put their putters in their bag and they get in the cart and then one will take off and one will be paused there for a second. And you know that they're writing down the scores for the hole. Sad to say. I mean, if, if you see that unfolding, you're probably just playing the wrong golf course. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's just not, you're not going to have kindred spirit golfers of the sort of golf that you and I like, you know, around you. And that's just too bad. It's Southern Pines. That's one of the uh, hidden gems of American golf. It's, you know, it's a delight. I mean, I, I contend that it's on the best uh, property in Moore County. Um, every hole rises or falls 20, 30 um, feet. The green to tee walks are very short. Um, I've lived, I moved here in 2000, and Chris Bowie and I go out many uh, evenings after work to play anywhere from 5 to 11 or 12 holes. And, you know, we're closing in on 20 years of having done that, and not once have I made the mile drive thinking, gee, I wish I was doing something else. I mean, I'm always keen to get to the golf course. And a lot of that's just because the land is so good. Yes, all the detail work, you know, the Ross detail work is missing. The greens have been uh, modified. But nonetheless, the appeal of the land just shines through. They're ho only homes on, on two of the holes, and oftentimes we'll skip those two holes. And regardless of how I left the house, I will be coming home in a better mood. If I was in a great mood when I left the house, I'll be in an even better mood when I return. Um, so my wife, Fritz, is always keen to shove me out the door and let me go get my hour fix. It's funny. I, I was, I was, it was the middle of winter. We, we left for this trip and the one of the first nights I, I was really stressed out. I'd been working all day and I went out to a course and walked nine and like 45, 50 minutes, came back 
And my wife was like shocked. I was in a completely different state of mind. And it's just amazing how like the spiritual, like uh, the release, like it's almost like meditation getting to go out and walk and play golf. So you didn't race home and enter your scores into the gen handicap system and, and compute how many greens and regulation you had and right. how many pots. I mean, I wasn't keeping cares? my stats. Exactly. Yeah. I, mean, I was just... putting with a pin in. I was, uh, you know, I was hitting a second chip if I wanted to hit a second chip. But most importantly, I was just hitting the golf ball and walking. That's what golf's for. And that just that message somehow gets uh, lost um, in this country. And again, people are free to turn the sport into anything that they um, want to. But for me, you know, it's pure relaxation. A friend of mine once said, well, you don't ever play for money. And I was like, I play for something, you know, much better than that. I mean, it's just, you know, bragging rights. And he just, he didn't understand that. Um, That's, I went through, a, I, I was a competitive golfer for, you know, I still play some competitive golf, but I was playing for score and I, I found myself, I got kind of, you know, lost in my way. But then when I started writing and reading more about architecture, um, three years ago, then all of a sudden the enjoyment of golf like spiked. I cared so much less about what I was shooting, what I was scoring, and I was just enjoying walking and observing what was going on around me on the golf course. And it, it was just an enlightening moment. And I think that's the thing that people get lost with the, it's, it is the American mentality. It's always like striving. And it, what's ironic about it is at work, you're always striving to be better. You're trying to, you know, grow. And that's like, you know, that's your, where the stress comes from, right? It's like, why are we putting this all the stress on when we're doing a leisure activity? If I want stress, I'll stay at my um, desk. Is this meant to be a pure form of, of relaxation? And, and again, I don't know why, you know, let's say that um, you, instead of shooting 75, you wanted to shoot 73. Well, how much more short game time is that going to take for you to be away from your wife to try and lop those two shots off. And that's where it just becomes, you know, more and more and more of a selfish uh, pursuit. And really, the only person who cares what you shoot is you. I mean, there's not a person in the world who cares what you shoot other than yourself. And, you know, all I can try and do is hope and pray to break um, 80 and, you know, if I do, you know, there's a sense of satisfaction. And if I don't, who cares? But one thing, you won't hear me talk about it because yeah. I know nobody cares. <laughs> That's exactly. Nobody cares but yourself about what you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> or the guy, maybe the guy that you're playing a match against cares. But yeah, but, but then it's just, just match the, play and there's no score, right? Yeah. I, I, well, I think that's like a big thing is the, the match play component, like how much quicker things would play and how much differently course design would have been had match play been the predominant um, form of the game in the U.S. versus stroke play. Well, you know, we've just profiled Somerset Hills and White Bear Yacht Club on Golf Club Atlas, and both of those end with 340, 350 uh, yarders, both of which, you know, if you're in a tight match against a good player and you're pushing for three, it's really hard to achieve. And, you know, it's a, they're great um, match play holes. They don't fit into the American norm of the big, tough, you know, brutish, strong two-shotter to end the round. But again, in match play, you know, it, you know, to me, it's much more interesting. Could you birdie the hole and win versus 
get a par and your and your opponent, you know, bogeys has a mishap. When you're evaluating, say, a golf course, and you just touched on two non-championship golf courses by certainly today's standards, fun golf courses to play versus a brutish championship course. How do you do? You, do you kind of look at them as two different types of golf? Um, no, I mean, it just, you know, the only thing that I know leaving a golf course is, do I want to come back? That's the only thing that, um, matters to me. And if I do want to, you know, I, I'd never understand somebody who says, you know, I just loved it. I had the best time, you know, do you think you'll ever go back? No. I mean, you know, there, as you know, and the, as the, um, as ease of travel has come about in the last two decades, there are now a lot of list chasers and people running around ticking boxes. I've played here, I've played here. And, you know, to, if a guy has played a golf course one time, you know, he might have some surface remarks about it that you can pretty much read anywhere. Um, I'm much more interested in the guy who's played it two, three, four um, five times and really taken the time to start to get to, to know the course. Um, but it all comes back to, you know, do you want to return? I, I'll never forget um, the first time I played Castle Stewart. I just felt like I missed, um, you know, I, I wasn't hitting the ball well. I was always out of position. I just felt like I was missing something. And I just knew that I was super keen um, to return so a few years ago, um, Fritz and I went up there in November. There were very few people. We stayed for three days, and everything just opened up um, before me. And it's just been one of my favorite courses um, ever since. But it only happens based on familiarity. That's a, I feel the same way. as yeah, I was talking to somebody the other day about old town club and they're like i'm surprised you're not hitting old town club on this trip and i was like well i talked to talked to a guy at the club dunlop who suggested i come back in the fall plus i didn't want to just squeeze in one day like if i'm going to go there i want to go i want to be there for Experience at least it two properly yeah, yeah. and it, and it's funny because like what you were just talking about castle stewart I played so I played National Golf Links for the first time this year, and the first round, it was like I felt sensory overload. You know, I walked off the golf course and I was like, I you know right, I could, I'd blown. seen you so much process. stuff <laughs> that it, exactly that you were, I was struggling to process and and then I got I got to go back again that week and play it again and I I picked up more and then and then I went later in the year and you pick up more and that that time I played with older equipment so i picked up even more like you know i'm playing with a balada and all of a sudden this tee shot on 17 isn't just bash it up the left it's like oh my god i'm seeing bunkers i hadn't seen before and that's the thing is with these great golf courses you learn so much more and more and more every time around them and it's almost un it's unfair to even that's something with a rating system and i wanted to ask you is like how do you even cast judgment on a golf course one time around especially with the you know the great ones you know a, a lot of people um i remember um a friend of mine ted sturgis from indianapolis we went to see um chambers bay 
um, Tom Doak's course in Washington State, Tumble Creek, and um, the David McClay Kid course. Gamble. Gamble Sands. Gamble Sands. And, and we, it was about a five-day trip, and Ted asked me at the end, uh, and then we saw Waverly and then the Cal Club. He goes, so, you know, how would you rank the five courses? And I said, Ted, you know, ask me in five weeks, and I'll have had time to kind of mull it over. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, you know, I think that's a little bit part of the danger, and I'm not – I know I have a Twitter account, um, and I've – People are tweeting at me, but I can't remember my password to ever respond. But I think that's a real danger. Uh, I, I, I personally would be very leery of making um, tweets, uh, leaving a golf course, because I just, you know, there's no rush. The world's not waiting for your opinion on a golf course. You, you might as well take the time to, you know, to kind of roll it around and, um, think about it you know it, it's always been ironic to me we expect our architects to live and die on a site and only do two or three courses max in a year and then we blow in and out in five hours to render some you know judgment yeah and, I mean, where's the fairness in that it's just absurd it's it's i people always are like you don't write your review like you write about a golf course right away when it's freshest and i'm like well i, I don't forget about it i actually think more about it and and then you know what's the stuff that sticks with you the most too, right? When you when you wait, it's, it's, so you started uh, Golf Club Atlas in the late nineties. How did how did it come to be? And for anybody that's listening that's not gone to the site, it's essentially I mean something that's inspired me since I was a I was a kid and read and you know there's unbelievable troves of information about golf architecture on it. Um, well, to be honest, I was bullied into starting it. Some friends of mine had some software, and they wanted to prove to corporations um, that it worked. And they asked me if I had anything that they could load into it um, that, that, that would demonstrate its viability. And I said no. And they came back and said, well, do you ever take pictures of anything? I said, apart from golf courses, no. And they said, well you know, have you ever written about golf courses? And it turned out my brother and I wrote these little um, booklets and we would send them to 20 or 25 um, people. I said, yeah, I enjoy doing that. I said, well, why don't you do some course profiles? We can do this and this. And then the clincher was they said you could have something called a discussion group. And this is in 1998. I'm like, well, what's that? And they said, well, you can post, and I'm living in Sydney, Australia. You can make a post People around the world can read it and then respond back. And at the time, I was going broke, calling people, saying, I just played Royal Melbourne, I just played Kingston Heath, I just played New South Wales, and I'm getting these enormous phone bills. And and I said, so, so wait, essentially I thought, well, if I did that, it would pay for these stupid phone calls of me bragging to people. Sure enough, we started to assemble things and we went live in uh, the summer of 1999. With this all sudden ability for people to communicate, exchange ideas, you know, share information, how do you think golf architecture has changed with the founding of Golf Club Atlas? Well, you know, a lot of clubs do kind of cloak and dagger um, stuff. I mean, I know growing up that that the 
power and control on what direction a golf course was going to go resided with a few people. And, and now there, with, there's just so much more free flow of information and it's available to anybody. And all you have to do is your due diligence. So there, in theory, there should be a lot more educated people on golf course architecture you know, and in addition to the internet and, and websites and pod, podcasts like yours, there was a real resurgence starting in the mid-90s just in printed literature. A lot of fine golf books. I know you're a huge fan of George uh, Botto's book on C.B. McDonald. And just, you know, just became an instant uh, cornerstone book that could disseminate, you know, valuable informa- information to every McDonald Rainer course out there. And you see places like Sleepy Hollow just latch on to it and and run with it. So so there's so much better information out there, and and it's available to all the members. And I you know and to be honest, you know what Golf Club Atlas has become since 2006 seven with the great implosion of new course construction has really been chronicling all the great restoration uh, work because there's been a paucity of, of new course construction. And, and you know, that's one thing that America has done better than the UK. They, Americans have taken greater, more records and more detail has gone into restoration projects here than, than elsewhere around the golf globe. Um, yeah, that's something that American golf's done better than. That's no, a, that's no. a rare thing for some. That's actually, I, you know, I never had thought about it that way. And, you know, I can whine a lot um, and wish the sport was simpler here and, and wish it was more akin to the UK roots. But, but that thought um, occurred to me when I was in Edinburgh a few um, uh, weeks ago um, that, that that is, and, and I asked several of the Scots. Uh, I was with, um, and and nobody um, really would take the other side of that argument mm-hmm. that they that they do um, better pure uh, restoration work. How long did you live in Australia? Uh, seven years, nineteen ninety three to two thousand. How's the golf culture there different from, say, the UK and America? You know, it's a it's warmer, Um, and so you'll see um, the folks with the the socks pulled up to their knees and in short um, pants. And I don't think short pants are allowed even at at some of the um, clubs in the UK. They have the same um, culture in terms of um, pull trolleys. Um, I don't ever recall seeing a caddy in. Uh, Australia other than at an event um, you know it if you're an able-bodied person in the UK or Australia you're going to take a pull cart or you're going to carry your bag I mean you're not going to feel like a ponce and have some guy do it for you when you're perfectly capable so um, in a lot of ways it's just a warm uh, weather version of golf in the UK, the biggest difference that they do is that they pull their trolleys right across the greens rather than around the um, sides. And you see so much of the 
you know, the fringes in this country are oftentimes the worst presented part of the golf course because they get so much uh, traffic. And Australia recognizes that, and, and, and they say the hardest surface on the golf course is the putting surface, and you'll do the least damage. So just, go, you know, drag your cart across. It's, it's funny. I uh, As an American, I, I you always walk around and put your bag on the fringe, and I was playing golf with Brian Palmer, who was the former su- superintendent of Shore Acres, and he's just putting his bag right on the green, and and I'm like, well, if he's doing it, <laughs> it's and and you know, same same idea. He's like, what me resting this bag, and he has you know a no stand carry bag, like a it was like a McKenzie bag, and him putting it down. I mean, that's less impact on the green than somebody walking. It you know it makes sense. Um, another thing in Australia. I remember if you hit it to within your first putt to within two or three feet, and assuming you're not in anybody's line, you are fully expected to hole out. Nobody wants to see you mark, clean the ball, step back, plumb bob, do this, do that. You know, there's a great sense of urgency to, you know, beat four hours and just play in a, you know, timely uh, manner. Again, nobody has the patience to watch you grind over a two and a half footer. I don't have the patience to allow myself to grind over to It just doesn't matter. Yeah. Now let's take a few moments to talk about our sponsor. Today's episode is powered by TD Ameritrade. Whether on the course or in the market, it helps to have a second set of eyes to keep you on your game. That's why TD Ameritrade's trade desk is here to help gut check your strategies so you always feel confident teeing up a trade. Visit tdameritrade.com backslash fried egg to learn more about what their trade desk can do for you. Member SBIC. Now back to Rand Morissette. One of the new things that you added this year was to GCA is the 147 custodians of the game. I thought it was one of the best things I've read in a long time was the, you know, the preamble to the, to the list of courses. Tell us a little bit about how you came up with that idea, why, why you decided to put it out now and, and kind of the thought process behind what a true custodian of the game is. Well, I I have, um, you know, you and I were talking last night, you know, rankings and lists have, um, have taken on negative, um, connotations, um, lately, but I've always enjoyed puzzling over what resonated, what didn't, why do I like one course more than the other, blah, blah, blah. And so, um, Tom Doak asked me to join the golf magazine panel in the uh, mid-1990s when I was living in Australia, and I served on that panel, um, but I became um, frustrated um, by several things that were going on, and I, and I didn't think that the direction really represented um, and espoused the, the kind of golf that, that I really enjoyed, so I resigned from that uh, panel and uh, March or April, knowing full well I'd already started to write the 147 custodians of the game. And one of the things that had prompted me was, you know, we write a lot of course profiles on Golf Club Atlas on courses that are, you know, whether they're nine holers or 6,000, 62, 6,300 yards. And I've, I've just received some of the nicest uh, handwritten letters from people saying, thank you for being a voice of reason in, in the world. And so prompted by that, you know, 
you know, it's one thing if you feel like you're the only person who enjoys that golf. And sometimes you would just kind of keep your opinion to yourself. But I think there's an enormous group of people who would enjoy playing, you know, three hour round um, golf. Um, and some of the things that we've talked about earlier on your show. And so I tried to um, give a voice to to that, to to what um, you know, would appeal. And then some of the things that, um, you know, that like in America, um, you know, some of the trappings of the game that don't actually lend any, um, real value. And so, so I'm, I, I, to be honest, I am, uh, very, um, proud and I got a lot of help from, uh, three or four, um, people who, who asked to remain, anonymous um but i was really really pleased with how it turned out and i was pleased with the um, outcome because there were some people who were very upset that they didn't make it um which made me um happy um and so you know it it it, it, it you know and it really reached um far and wide i mean i'm i'm um a technological uh, idiot and i'm always amazed at, you know, Golf Club Atlas having been going for long enough, you know, we have a reach into, you know, all the corners of, of the um, world. Um, and and it was and it was really um, pleasing. Uh, you know, a past captain of the RNA sent a, a glowing um, email. And to a guy like me who cares about the history of the sport, what can you say? I mean, it just it just meant a lot. Yeah. So where, how's the list evolve? Is there, you know, plans for updating, changing as, as you go along? The hundred, so it's interesting um, that, you know, the 147 came about because there are 147 um, open championships that have been held and there've been a few missteps along the way, like Carnoustie where they lost control of the course 20 years ago. Um but by and large, it's been a testament um, to the game. So I decided to do uh, 147, and I said with each Open Championship, I will add another course to the um, list. And and you know, in the process over the course of a year, I might play, revisit ten or fifteen, you know, or so of those courses. And so there'll be some some um uh movement um sean arbel is a huge i'm just a huge 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 fan of sean arbel's work in the united kingdom profiling these country english courses and working on a trip with him and my friend joe andrioli in the first of september to go see a lot of common ground courses up the west side of um, england so i have a feeling that um, two or three of those will squeeze their way onto the list. Um, and, and next it'll become 148 custodians, even though somebody said that, that the expression, the 147 custodians is already wedged its way into the vernacular. And so you ought to keep it at that, even though the number will grow. And I think maybe that's the way I'll do it. And when it when it's, uh, reaches 155 courses, you'll know that it's been going for eight years. And so it'd be a nice... Um, process yeah and it gives people a, a, a reason to reread that again every year 
which is I think important is that you always good to reread stuff and like jog your memory of, Oh, this, this is what is important. Yeah, no, it, you know, it, it's fine. You know, one of the comments came uh, from an architect who just played uh, Royal Portrush and, and the several times that I've been there, it has had really wet, thick, heavy, rough line on top of itself. And, you know, it's a course that's not heavily bunkered and obviously it's a very windy site. Um, and then I just feared with the open championship coming there this year that it'd be even more narrow. And, um, so that's an example of a course that didn't make it. And this architect was actually saying the plane conditions were wonderful and the rough wasn't impenetrable. So some of that just has to do with, you know, the weather and the time that you're there. And, um, so, you know, there, you know, probably is a is a course need to go um revisit but when how'd you get into golf courses in the start i mean you've been traveling a ton you've seen everywhere you've been heavily you're one of the co-authors of the confidential guides uh with tom doak and darius oliver and so how how'd you you know kind of start this golf crazed life no it's a you know it's 100 percent um due to dad who took a very relaxed approach and he would go play nine holes every night after work and he never put any pressure on us to go and and as soon as you know as soon as somebody doesn't want you to go you want to go so i mean so you know and and so we would um um you know we started off like that and dad worked at a, a regional investment firm and in uh, Richmond, Virginia, and there was a man named Harry Easterly um, who worked there um, too. And Mr. Easterly later became the president of the USGA and was on it was the executive director of the USGA and was a member at St. Andrews and um, Muirfield and every Augusta and and uh, Pine Valley and and uh, Mr. Easterly took an interest in my dad and a father taking his three sons to play um, golf. And so in 1983, when I was 20 years old, we took our first trip to the UK and we played Dornock, Muirfield, St. Andrews, and Turnberry. Um, and, you know, if you didn't like golf then, you know, and you didn't, if that didn't pique your interest in golf architecture, then something was wrong. Um, and I ended up working for the USGA for a couple of years in 1985-86. You know, I started to see Fisher's Island, Shinnecock Hills, played Augusta with Mr. Easterly. So, you know, obviously an incredibly fortunate, um, spoiled, rotten um, life. Um, but it all um, resonated. Um, and then, you know, comparing those courses, though, I was seeing some work going on to the Country Club of Virginia where we remember that just didn't resonate. It didn't mesh what I saw at these great courses with what was going on with the, the local club. So you start pondering, wondering, wondering. Um, and, you know, I'll, I'll never, one of our first trips was to Pinehurst and Harbortown. It was a family vacation from Richmond. We stopped in Pinehurst and we went down to Harbortown. And, you know, Harbortown has some obvious wow moments and really cool features and really cool um, greens. And I, I still think that and Sand Hills are one of the two um, 
greatest courses, you know, in the in the modern game that, that changed the direction of the game. But nonetheless, we walked away thinking that Pinehurst was all that bit more special. And we just and on the ride home from Hilton Head to Richmond, which was something like eight, nine hours, all we did was blabber about why we thought that. And so that's when I'm um, 14, 15. You know, poor mom's in the front. I'm, I'm sure she owns some earplugs that I never saw. Um, but, you know, just trying to, to you know, you know, comparing uh, – Harbor Town with these, you know, Calabogie sound and, and high winds um, versus Pinehurst, which other than a couple of holes doesn't move up or down, you know, more than 10 or 15 um, feet. It, it really was an interesting uh, mental exercise. So just, you know, from that from that first Pinehurst Harbor Town trip to the UK trip to some exposure to the Northeast courses, including like Yale University, it, you know, it was a recipe for falling in love with the study of golf architecture. Yeah. The, I think that's the Yale's one that kind of, I think can show what a per, like how a person views the game. I was playing with a random guy yesterday and he was like, Oh, that towel, I have a Yale towel and he couldn't see the whole towel. And he's like that, that looks like a, that's a really wild course. Like, and he was, you know, in a, in kind of a tone that was like, he didn't like it. (laughs) (laughs) And like the blind shots and everything, you could just tell like, Oh, this is the type of, but, and I don't want that to sound the wrong way, but I said, Oh yeah, that's amazing place. Huh? And he's like, yeah, it's something. And, but you know, that, that place (laughs) is like an adventure. Yeah. I went up there when I joined the USGA in 85, and so I'm in Bernardsville, and at Yale from Bernardsville, it was on a weekend, I went with Wes Seeley, who was the director of communication, and we saw Herbert Warren Wynn up on the patio, wrapped up in a blanket, um, and that was awesome, but when we got back to the USGA, and we said, well, yeah, we drove, you know, two and a half hours to go see Yale, and, and the man's response was, Why'd you go there? There's so many better conditioned courses in Connecticut. And, you know, and, and yes, there was goose droppings all over the third green and yada, 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 yada. And I came back just blown away by that golf. I mean, it was just eye opening and, you know, talking about inspiring and da, 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 da. And, and then, you know, that guy's comment was just this bucket of cold water. And I just knew right away that he and I were coming at the sport from two different things, you know, two different angles. And again, not saying, you know, there's a right or a wrong, um, but, you know, I'll stick with my perspective. It, it, that's something that I think about all the time, especially with Augusta National, is that Augusta National has this ability that it, it you know, it, it essentially shapes the way so many people look at the way at golf. But the thing that people take away from Augusta national seemingly always is the conditions and the, the beautiful flower beds rather than like when it opened, it had 22 bunkers and it's got wide, you know, for the most part, really wide fairways and strategic bunkers, limited force carries extremely playable. Like why, why do you think, that's what the the average American golfer takes away. Yeah, you know, boy, Augusta um, 
well, you know, for a lot of people, it kicks off their golf season. You know, if you live in Boston, you might not have hit a hit a shot, and so it's just the the awakening of a season. So there's an automatic built-in um, euphoria. But I mean, to, you know, from my perspective, last time I checked, Alistair McKenzie was viewed as a good architect, and the changes that have been made there in the last twenty years have really pivoted away from. The, from Bobby Jones, from Bob Jones and Alistair McKenzie's original um, thoughts. And, you know, when they built that course, you know, the world's greatest courses, you know, in the, in the 30s, it, you know, it was Pine Valley and it was Oakmont. And then, like you say, this course comes along with huge wide fairways, um, just a handful of uh, bunkers, but a lot of really cool plane angles. And then systematically, you've seen them this uh, century reduce the plane angles. And, you know, I just find it appalling, you know, the tree placement down the 11th hole. You know, maybe if they had narrow, if they put in trees on the left side of the fairway and push it over to the right. But, I mean, they just totally ruined all of the um, plane angles. Right now, you want to be, you know, 10 yards into trees to have the best angle into the um, green. And so... You know, it, its evolution is um, very regrettable. I'm personally shocked at how the the rankings, all the the magazines, just give it a free pass. I mean, it really is the, you know, a holy grail um, type place, and the poor work that goes on there um, just gets a pass. And I, I don't know, you know, that's its clout. I I did a interesting article last year during the Masters. I I looked at the scoring dispersion of holes from 1982 till now, and the 11th is like shocking. Is essentially they've traded birdies and double bogeys for pars and bogeys. Yeah, with the planting, like it's become such a one-dimensional hole, and it's taken away the thrills and the and the the near near thrills that bounce into the water, and all of a sudden a double bogey comes out of nowhere with, with a guy who thinks he can pull off a shot that's trying to, but like now it's just hit in the fairway. And if you're not in a perfect spot, just bail out. Right. Right. Now, it, obviously the U S open is now played in April and that's really a shame because the masters used to have its own voice and it morphed into the U S open. And, you know, we already have a U.S. open, so let's go back to that brand of golf. You know, there are some um, rumblings that they, they are cognizant that they, they want to get back to um, um, how the course um, used to be. And, of course, those trees can be gone in a second on the 11th hole, um, just as an example. But the back tee on seven, you know, 455-yard uh, tee to, to that um, shallow um green you know it's just it's just it's bad architecture it's bad golf uh, you know you would think they would know better i mean to their credit they don't even hardly use the t anymore but they ought to just they ought to get um rid of it well it's, it, you know with the modern game and the modern driver modern ball it it i i always reminds me of the mcdonald quote with the haskell ball where he talked about how you know the haskell ball has you know created it's made great holes in different and made many indifferent holes really great. And if the seventh, a 350-yard hole with a shallow green with a wide fairway would be one of the most compelling holes on the golf course with the modern game. 
It's like, where are the guys going to drive it up to? Are they going, are they going to try to right. drive it really close? Or are they going to lay back? Or, you know, all of a sudden, some guys might on the right day with the right wind be able to drive the green. And it, all of a sudden, that hole would be one of the most fun holes to watch on a golf course that's got a ton of, you know, unbelievable holes to watch. Yeah, I'm not a fan of courses where you automatically pull the driver um, every single time. And if they would play that hole from a 350 to 400 yard, I think you would see four or five different clubs pulled by different players. And in certain conditions, some people would probably try and drive it into the greenside um, bunker. But it'd be infinitely more interesting than having everybody hit uh, driver and having a you know eight iron in. Obviously, we. I think we'd be in the same boat where we'd love to see Augusta National transform back to what it was. What are uh, some of the the projects that you've seen, say, over the course of GCA that have been the most inspirational in the sense of like transforming a golf course? Um, one would be uh, Sleepy Hollow, um, where it, it, you know. Th- Back when I worked at the USGA, we had a dinner there once, and nobody wanted to play the golf course. So it was just a having dinner in the Vanderbilt uh, former um, estate, and now nobody would go to Sleepy Hollow and not beg to play the golf course. I mean, that's transformational. Um, Los Angeles Country Club, you know, George Thomas is an absolute um, legend and hero. His work had been um, so mistreated. And and at Los Angeles, you now see that he's one of the, you know, handful of um, greatest architects um, ever. Um, you know, one restoration project that I think uh, really flew under the radar because it's a it's a pretty quiet club is the Country Club of Brooklyn. Um, again, Gil Hans um, did it and just did, uh, you know, top tier um, work. I was amazed. Um, to read some negative um, comments about the course, but th- that's such a cool old-fashioned course with, you know, the smallest greens this side of um, Pebble Beach that it represents a very appealing throwback. And now with the work that's occurred there, um, it you know they they fully um, embrace that. And again, you know, I want to go to a golf course that's different. I don't want to go to a golf course that I've seen twenty-five. Um, different versions of and and the country club you know in its old-fashioned ways um, you know has its own voice that's I think that's an important part is it's not about doing what the course down the street does it's about doing what your course is you know and finding that unique feel vibe architecture the funky stuff getting that back and making yours not you know like the course down the street you and that, make you know, them look at it and say, "I want to be like that golf course." You know, you you couldn't be more um, spot on. But in the '60s, '70s, '80s, and '90s, it was the club down the road is planting trees, and so we should um, plant trees. And so the courses just became more and more the same. And you know, what's the what's the point in that? Well, I mean, part of that though is it it tied with the trend of society that was like the mass suburbization everybody moving to the suburbs everybody's you know these housing developments that had the houses that looked exactly the same right down the row and i think that's one of the things golf architecture follows trends in society so much and uh, a sense of i think we're starting to see 
this shift back to hand craftsmanship and it and it falls in line with what's going on in the greater society where people are more involved more interested in experiences and more interested in you know buying lettuce that's locally farmed rather than the mass-produced 50 cent lettuce they want to have that they want to know where it's from and i think that's where we're starting to see that i'd be interested what what do you think you know obviously restoration's been a huge part of golf course architecture the last you know 15 20 years what what do you see as the next wave well you know speaking of restorations you know you and i first met at the california golf club of san francisco which you know talking about a transformation if you've i I had honestly never heard of that golf course um it came up in a few threads of golf club atlas um but the you know the pictures that i saw it just it didn't resonate you know now in my opinion it's the you know it's the finest course um you know, in, in the greater San Francisco area. And I, you know, talking about going from zero to 10, um, in a rapid rate, I mean, that's a, uh, transformation that you just can't, um, beat. So, you know, I, I'm not sure, um, you know, to, to answer your question, I'm not sure we need more golf courses. I'm not sure that golf is growing. Um, maybe it is with, um, women. So, I'm I'm much more of a fan of taking care of what we have. I, I cannot. I do not play um, poor, bad golf courses. I, I would rather not play than go play a poor course. And a lot of people, their exposure to golf is, is by playing in different courses because their bodies just want to play whatever's the cheapest golf course and there's no hook to get you involved so you know if if you said all we were going to do until um, 2050 is get our house in order and take care of all the courses that we have in the world I, i already i would be perfectly happy with that barring that obviously what i'd like to see is you know some more nine hole courses more 6,000 yard courses come up, um, more courses that, um, you know, could be, a, and they have to be close to where people live. And, and the problem in America is the pricing of, of land can be prohibitive to then build something like that. But even as you and I discussed last night, even if it was a five hole golf course, I mean, something, um, but just make sure that it's, that it's of, you know, high quality. It makes people think, it makes people want to hit a bump and run shot. You have options. Um, you know, you, you can't have enough uh, golf like that. Yeah, I, I agree. It's the interesting aspect of how courses have gotten so long to fit for technology is just like when you're building a new course, do you build it to make it easy to walk for people playing the back tees or the middle tees? Either way, some class of golfer because of the the 7000 yards is going to have a bad walking experience where you're either walking back to tees or or you have to walk forward all the time to tees and and you're going to have, you know, 50 75 yard walks between greens and tees. Yeah, I I'm actually not even a fan of tees. I mean, I say prepare <laughs> give some prepared yeah. surfaces and let just people pick where they want to um play from. Um, 
And, and again, you can't have, you know, then you can't have a handicap if you're doing that and this and this and this. And you'll hear those arguments in this country, but you won't hear them in the UK. Yeah, this, I uh, I was playing with some guys and, uh, you know, it was a course I played a bunch of times and it was really windy. And it was this, it's a great, there's this great risk reward par five. Like it's an infinitely better hole if you have a chance to go for it in two and it's playing into a 25 mile an hour wind. So I say to the guys, like, let's go move up. We moved up to, like, the green tees, which were, were you know, 120 yards shorter than, than the back tees that we were playing. Just because I was like, you got to have a chance to go for this. This is It's a great golf hole. And if you don't have it, like, it's a, it's a much worse golf hole. So we move up. Everybody's having to hit, like, a long iron over, you know, over water. Try, and, you know, you either bail out or you, you go for it. And, you know, everybody had, you could tell had a great time. It's like, why can't you just play a tee based off of how you want to play a hole? You'll get no argument um, from me. I mean, again, it, you, you start putting all these rules and regulations, you know, around a sport. You have to take a cart. You have to take a caddy. Well, really? Do you? I mean, Why? Just, you know, like at the cow club, you can carry your bag, you can take a pull cart, you can take a caddy, or you can you can do anything you want to. They, you know, they, they just assume that the members have common enough sense to do the right thing. I, I can't mean, believe that pull carts are not allowed at a lot of clubs around the country. Well, again, it gets back to the false perception that somehow they're tied to municipal courses only. And you go to Muirfield in Scotland and all you'll see are pull carts. I mean, the members never going to hire a caddy. Mm-hmm. So it's just it's just false it's false perceptions that have been perpetuated and I, I what what bothers you more mandatory carts or no pull carts allowed mandatory carts is a no go so i'm just not going to be there so that doesn't um you know i mean i you know again i i've had so many great experiences um with caddies it, I, it's not that conceptually that i have a problem with caddies, it, it, you know, it's that you have to take one. Um, but if you do show, if you do go to a place and they say, you you know, there are no um, pull carts, you know that they're trapped back in time and, and that they're not, um, you know, they're just, you know, it's just, it's just bad decision making. So you're not likely to be with kindred spirits at a place like that. All right. Last question. You're a resident of the uh, Pinehurst, greater Pinehurst area. You got 10 rounds. How are you splitting them? Well, I will tell you, we're doing this interview in, on March uh, the 1st, and this is the absolute best time of year um, to, to be here. Like Pinehurst number two um, plays perfectly with its dormant Bermuda um, fairways, dormy club, dormant Bermuda fairways. Um, so this time of year, I would lean heavily on those two courses. Um, you know, mid pines and pine needles for reasons that I don't understand, they both overseed and those courses become much slower and less fun. Mid pines, um, sparkles in August, um, with their new Bermuda fairways, they, it can still be very bouncy, very firm. So I, I, I'm not trying to hedge um, on, on your answer. It depends on what time of of year. Um, you know, the big 
we've kind of got the big four and a half here. We've got Piner's number two. We've got Dormy, Mid Pines, Pine Needles. And then, uh, you know, I'm a big fan of uh, the Cradle. Um, and and then, you know, up the road, you've got um, Tobacco Road. And then just for a quiet afternoon hit, again, I've just never been disappointed by Southern Pines. But those are the courses that you have to um, you have to see. Um, yeah. It's, it's uh, funny I, that when I plan my trip and everybody's like, well, why are you coming now? And I'm like, why am I coming now? When when else would you go? It's, and then you listen to what Ross said about he, w- he was enamored with the way that played in the winter. And it was closed in the summer because in the winter, the Bermuda didn't stick. And all of a sudden, you could play ground game shots. Well, yeah, they're very favorable rates here, and I've played number four um, four times, number uh, Piner's number two four times between um, uh, the first week in January and the last week of February, and the longest it took us was four hours and fifteen minutes. One round was three hours and fifty minutes, and you know when the guests come in peak season, you know the times are going to really swell beyond that. Um, and that diminishes, you know, just some of the um, fun. But it is, it's an absolute joy to, to live here right now. And I, I try to personally not travel very much so that I can take advantage of it this time of year. Yeah. Well, I, I know you're, uh, you got, you got a tight window here. So we appreciate the time. Uh, everybody can read a lot of your writing on Golf Club Atlas. You're doing some contributing for Golf Week. And, uh, be sure to check out Golf Club Atlas if you haven't yet. It's uh, it's it's really like a uh, you know, if you're if you're a golf course addict, it's uh, it's where you can definitely get your uh, fix uh, on a regular basis. Thanks for having me, and I I look forward to seeing your Elks course up outside of Chicago. Oh um, yeah, this summer you got it. Got yeah, it. Let me know when it. you come. You, you know I bring will. the dogs. <laughs> you're a good man. <laughs>